So to have that lifted, to, ha- to just be free of the notion, I don't have to protect anybody. I don't have to, I don't have to keep anybody's anything. It's not mine because I don't know how to do that without shame. Welcome to She Walks the Walk, the podcast. I'm Sam Plavins. She Walks the Walk is a movement I started to help women lead more inspired, more authentic lives. If you've got a thirst for adventure, like hanging out with other women who are keeping it real, and tend to do things, as I say, in your own twirly way, you're in the right place. When you finish listening to this podcast, find out how you can join a community of like-minded women at SheWalksTheWalk.com. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. Today I'll be sharing something very special with you. When disillusioned, overachieving lawyer Christy Tate decided to share her journey through group therapy with the world, she caught the attention of Reese Witherspoon and soon climbed to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Her poignant but hilarious memoir, Group, stopped me in my tracks. Because I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. I'm a huge champion of it. And in fact, I think I have a t-shirt still that says, Everybody in Therapy but I'd never stepped foot in a group setting before, let alone one as unorthodox as Dr. Rosen's. Christy recently joined our newly launched global book club, New Leaf, to chat candidly with women about her experience in group, where she battled through her disordered eating and a tireless quest to find someone who would love her, and in the end, to love herself. Through her therapist's uncompromising theory that holding secrets permeates shame, Christy learned that she didn't need to be fixed. What she needed was a witness. If you're looking for an addictive new book, if you've ever been in group therapy or therapy of any kind, if you're a woman who's ever questioned herself or held the secrets of others to the detriment of your personal growth, Christy's memoir, Group, is a must-read. I found her to be one of the most down-to-earth, genuine people I've ever interviewed. Here she is, along with a handful of our new book club members from all over. Christy, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Your book was fabulous. It spoke to me on so many levels. I want to start by asking you why you decided to share your story and how your life has changed since you wrote the book. (laughs) All right, we're jumping (laughs) in, guys. Okay, let's go. Um, First of all, thank you for having me. I was really grateful to hear from Sam. Um, I got a lovely email and her assistant, Mel, they've just been so professional and um, thanks everybody for coming. I really, I've zoomed into a lot of book clubs as I've been like working and promoting group and it's such a special thing. I mean, book clubs are so, I feel like if I'd have gotten into a really good book club, I wouldn't have needed group. (laughs) Um, But anyway, no pressure on this book club. Um, So why did I write this book? So I had, I had become, I had become a lawyer and I was working and I'd stabilized, you know, I'm beyond the years of the book now. Right. And I have my husband and we're stable. I'm stable. And I was kind of bored at being a lawyer. I don't know if there's any lawyers on here, but it feeds a certain part of me, but not all of me. So I started writing and I had written some novels and they were new, like they're any, like anybody's first novels that are first drafts, like they were terrible, unreadable. And in one of them I had written about, I mean, all of them were like 
filled with me as my character, like a young, lonely law student and her therapist. It's always the therapist, you know, and I didn't know how to end one of these novels. And I just had the young female protagonist just have sex with her therapist. And I'm, I'm talking about this in group and Dr. Rosen is like, why don't you bring that scene in? And I'm like, okay. So I bring it in and he's, he hands it to Brad. I have, you know, the pages printed out hands it to Brad. He was like, read this. And he read, Brad read it out loud. It's this terribly written sex scene between me and Dr. Rosen, which I hadn't written it as if it were him. I had a, I had Adrian Brody in my head and, um, <laughs> and Kira Knightley, but my group is picturing me and Dr. Rosen, who's sitting across the circle and they were shrieking and like dying. Like, ah, make it stop. And then at one point, somebody said like off the cuff, Max said, why don't you just tell the true story? Because these fiction stories are terrible and scary. Um, and so why don't you just tell the true story? And it might have even just been a tossed off comment. But I started to realize, like, I was searching for, like, some fantastical literary fiction thing when really I had I could possibly have a memoir like a Cheryl Strayed. I mean, her her book, Wild, like she went on this journey from point A to point B on the Pacific coast trail. And I was like, well, I just went back and forth to my therapist's office, but I could see the journey. And so then I started to write it and then it sort of took on a life from there. But now that I'm doing press, like people assume that I was trying to help people and I wanted to spread the word about group. And that's a great story. It's just not true. It's not true. Like I'm happy it can be used that way. I'm not opposed to it. I certainly, but it was never meant to like help people. I thought it would be a good story. Mm, it was a good story. It was so radically honest. And so how has your life changed since writing the book? Oh, yeah. So a couple of things have happened. So as you all know, like writing a book is a super long process. I started writing group on November the 9th of 2015. So that's my very first day I wrote and saved a file. And I the first name of the book was saved under Once Upon a Therapy Session. And it was sort of had more of a rom-com feel. It wasn't as serious. It was kind of a romp. Um, and I told my group about it. So they knew about it all along. And what I think, a couple of things have happened since I wrote the book. One is I think that I have become very tender towards all the men who were in those stories. Like I don't have any bitterness at all. Like I can see that each of the men who played a role in my development were generous generous enough to share their lives with me and we weren't a good match and I'm glad they left even though I wasn't at the time um and so I have this sense of like gratitude I have a lot of gratitude for everybody certainly my group mates too because they can be such pains in the ass with such pains in the ass and I can in any given moment I can just be like it feels like they're standing in my way because they're trying to like help me and lead me towards good choices. And sometimes, sometimes you just want to eat the ice cream for dinner and a group mate would be like, why don't you bake a potato and have some salmon, you know? So I chafe against them, but when I looked back and started writing how much I loved them and what a big role they played as big, like they're sort of a Greek chorus, but they're as big a part of my life as Dr. Rosen is. So I think gratitude for all the people in the book is feels really, really big in my heart. That's an awesome summary of where you're at right now. Ladies, I don't want to be the one person who speaks. So 
who is brave? Who wants to pop a question in the chat or unmute themselves? I can go. <laughs> um, okay, Audrey. Actually, yes, Audrey from Quebec. The concept of trauma really came through for me when it's like, okay, trauma is not like a shark attack. It's not, yeah. it can be like, just, it can be an event that you react uh just you're not comfortable and like this the well I for me it's a scene because when I read the book I have a movie in my head and when the whole thing with is it the prom dress where the guys put your their finger and I'm just like is this for real and so like I'm reading swiping 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 so my question is when you wrote the book you sort of had to go through the events again right yeah. like did it was it also cathartic that way? Because I sort of get a sense that the more you talk about something, the more you're able to let it go, the more you... Sometimes people will mention or will say, well, that's a lot of personal information. But at the same time, like for the person trying to get over it, what... so it's sort of like a weird question, comment, but was it basically, was it cathartic to re relive that basically and put it down on paper? Because talking about it is one thing and then being able to put it down on paper is like a whole other yeah, I think that totally, it's totally cathartic. What's even more cathartic is to have readers reflect back to me that that meant something to them or that that happened to them. I cannot tell you, y'all can probably imagine, but I get emails that say, I had pinworm too. <laughs> like Now I'm just like on the regular having conversations about anal parasites. And I'm so happy about it. And that, that situation, that one of the last things I added to the book was that scene of the boys and the, my dress. And um, I was really, it wasn't like I was hiding it. I just didn't realize it belonged there, which now I'm like, that would have been so weird. Like, why did I think I got that prescription? Like, that's so bizarre. And so the, one of my first readers who wasn't a writer who read the book, it was the first straight man I let read the book when I was starting to get a book deal. And he's a coworker. So I was sort of like, he called me after he read it. And I was like, how embarrassed do I need to be that like people from billing or co-counsels or judges may know this about me? And he was like, you know what? Everybody has sex. Everybody's got sex problems. Everybody. So like, who cares about that? And he said the scene that was the most affecting to him as the father of a daughter was that scene with the boys. And I was like, oh, like just to know that it resonated and men haven't men haven't had that experience you know they I mean some men have but it's a particularly gendered kind of experience to be felt up and to be drunk and to, I certainly participated in it and I sort of wanted I'm I'm glad it's in there and I wanted to put it in there for the other reason was like None of those boys um it was it was consensual like I I mean I was drunk yes and I wanted it and how confusing that is to be 17 and feel like nobody ever wanted you and to finally get attention. Like I'm not the first writer to cover that, but it felt like it's so clear what the psychology of someone like me is and why I needed to go to so much group, you know? So Deb is wondering uh, if you're still working as an attorney and I replied to her that you're doing double duty. Can you give us just a, a quick update on that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, during the whole writing of this book, I was, I work for, uh, I work as an attorney for a government agency 
and um, the uh, the work is super boring, but the hours are flexible. And I took the job because I knew it would give me some time to write and parents like it's not a hard charging law firm. So that's the trade off. The work is super boring. And so I've been doing double time all along and I'm starting to get to the point now where I'm like, I kind of want to make the leap to writing full time. And I'm really I'm really afraid to let go of the security of the full time job. Like I've been a lawyer since 03 and I'm just it's like. I'm close to making the decision to stepping in leaping. I was telling Sam, I would consider it like leaping, Um, but I'm still just like, I'm still perseverating a little bit and just nervous about what, like the day that I got my book deal, um, you know, the agent calls, she's like, we've sold the book. And it's like this incredibly ecstatic moment. And my husband was there and we were talking and he was like, well, just so you know, like, just be clear, like, you had your job the whole time. So your job is probably part of the secret sauce of this, you know, like, I was like, are you trying to get me to keep my job? And so I think there, which echoes my own feeling, like this is the formula that worked. I, I wrote early in the morning. I wrote during lunch. I'm a working mom and I'm just a little bit afraid to like switch it up. I don't love change. So a little nervous. Can relate. I'm sure many of us can relate. <laughs> okay, Michelle is wondering how the release of your story to the world has affected your family. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. That's a great question. Because, <laughs> um, you, I mean, I hinted at this. I was trying so hard to just leave my family out of it because, as I said, they're extremely private. They're extremely religious. They're extremely not into therapy. And so I just sort of like blew all of that away and with my book about therapy and my sex life. So, <laughs> but but there's some of it just has to be there, you know, like some of like why... I, in early drafts, my writing group was like, well, what, what was your big, big hangup? Like, what's the big deal? Just go to therapy. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And so now that I've done, I sent the book to my parents and I give them so much credit because in a million years, they would never do this. They would never do this. I mean, I remember one time my dad got an audio book of Anne Lamott. I don't know if you guys know her, but she's an American writer and she writes about her recovery and she's kind of a mess, you know, and she's got a very, like, she would probably say that herself, a messy spirituality. And she's a recovering alcoholic. And my dad was like, she just like talks about herself the whole time. And that's like echoing in my head, (laughs) but my parents, um, you know, I feel, I feel much closer to them because all of this stuff, like I never talked about it with them. We just like, we don't have deep conversations and now they know me and whether they want to or not. I mean, they they could have chosen not to read the book and they chose to read it, which I, which means a lot to me. We had, we had one conversation about it. I don't think they ever want to talk about it again, but, um, and they were very brave. Like that's very brave to be 77 reading about your daughter's intimate life I was really scared about it and they were wonderful and really, really supported me. And there are limits to what we can do. And I'm obviously very open and I spend a lot of time thinking about communication and connection and they don't. And we tried to meet each other where we are. And that was really a meaningful thing. And I have siblings as well. And I have one sibling who like embraced it and made a video and was like publicizing it. And the other one, I haven't really talked to her since the book came out. (laughs) Um, So you can tell it's a little frosty. Um, She's not really in it. Um, And she was basically like, 
don't ever write about me and or my family. And I was sort of like, I didn't, it's not really a book about you, but so it's tricky. That's very tricky. And it's hard to stay the course and honoring privacy. They deserve their privacy, but I, I do get to tell my story and I have to evaluate each relationship, how to come out, how to bring my ethics and my voice and my ambition and my desire to stay in relationship into every single, it's hard. I wish I could write fiction. I would, if I could. So this, this part's really hard and I don't know that I've done it right. Um, but I've tried to bring my ethics and to try to write a book where and conduct myself through the process such that if I ran into anybody on the street, I wouldn't be afraid to look them in the eye. That's my test for my conscience. And I, I pretty much have that. I'm not, I'm not in love with the idea of running into read anywhere, but if I did, I, 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 I know he's well disguised and I know I left his personal. I mean, I, I wrote about what happened between us, but I didn't, I didn't go into his, there's a lot of stuff about his I left off the page. I've got one from Australia. Ah. <laughs> so one of the things that's coming across here at least, um, one of the sayings here in Australia is that what Americans call therapists, we call friends. It's a saying. And um, that to me was really coming through. Uh, where were your real what I say, real friends, you kept referring to everyone in therapy, you know, them becoming your friends. So from this side of the world, we're like, uh, yep, don't you say all this stuff you were saying to your friends? That's a great question. I haven't gotten that question. I really appreciate that perspective. And one interesting thing that's happened since I published the book is people who were my friends during law school or during college, they reached out to me and they were like, we didn't know, like we would never have used these words to describe you. And like my law school roommate who I write about her, I lived with her, you know, during part of the events of this book. And she was, she's the most wonderful effervescent. She's not even that judgmental. Like she's really, she wouldn't have cared. And I think the best answer to that is I didn't know I was so scared and so repressed and so full of secrets about things that normal people probably would tell their friends. Like today I would call a friend and laugh and say, you would not believe how many apples I eat at night. It's, it's hilarious. And it's expensive. Like I think I would have a sense of humor and a lightness and I would create intimacy by telling those stories, but I didn't know how. I did not know how. And now that I've written the book and I've engaged with people like my college roommates, like my college roommate, one of them wrote me and was like, I knew you were really messed up, but I didn't know what was going on with you. <laughs> and I was like, well, this was true. And I just got so far apart from people that I lost friendship skills. And I do believe that if I would have opened up to, to anybody. I don't think if anywhere along the way, if I would have like let a little bit of steam out, I think I would have been a different person. And that's one of the things I'm grateful that group has taught me how to be a friend. And so my, my first true intimate friends, people who knew me inside out and all the things I kept hidden from the world, they were group mates. But now that's, well, now it's the whole wide world, but, <laughs> but I did learn how to have some friends and it would have, it would have made that kind of intimacy had I had it. I don't think I would have sunk so far. 
So segue to the friendship question. So are, are you still going to group? Are you still seeing your friends in group? <laughs> My buddies. Um, yeah. Yes, we still, I, we're on Zoom now. Like we have to do it remotely because of the things. And um, so I Zoom in twice a week and it's not, people have a lot of questions about that. It's not the same. By an, it's not the same as like being with bodies, but there are some strange, I don't want to say benefits, but there's some strange insights that come from seeing somebody's interior. Like how else would, how else would you see somebody's like, house or their setup or you get a sense of the loneliness of somebody's life because their 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 room is bereft and one time we had a situation where one of the uh, members of my group has a has a spouse who's suffering from dementia and we've heard reports and it's super distressing to hear the reports but one time during the session the spouse barged in and we could see it and I don't know that I'm more helpful to that group mate because I've seen it up close, but there's something deeply intimate about having seen this interaction and my, my empathy was, was much, much increased from seeing it up close and in person. And then the other day we were just talking about like, what's because everybody's starting to get their vaccines and like, are we going, not me, but the older people and wondering like, are we going back? And then I'm like, am I going to spend like two hours commuting, like taking the train, getting downtown, doing the thing, coming back. It sort of feels like that feels so onerous now. So it's, it's hard to see how it will change, but we are still meeting on zoom and I'm really grateful for it because it's, you know, it's been stressful to be locked down as I'm sure all of you have experienced and just be scared and have kids who are scared and at home. And it's been a sort of, I actually didn't, I wouldn't have called it traumatic. This kind of goes back to the earlier question that Audrey said, like, I wouldn't have said I was traumatized by the pandemic. I would have used different words like disappointed, thrown off, whatever. But I did an event with a psychiatrist out of Stanford and she said, somebody asked a question from the audience, like, how do you know if you've had trauma? Because Trauma is like, if you're defining it yourself, for me, I would have said Vietnam, being a refugee and extreme poverty or like child abuse, childhood abuse, like that would have and it, and short of that, you're not traumatized, you know, and I just didn't know. And she told the audience, Dr. Vassen, she told the audience, like, we've all experienced a trauma from the pandemic, just the rug pulled out from under you, the fear maybe those of us who've had people who have been very sick or worse. Um, so that sort of was like, even after all this mental health treatment, I still have trouble identifying a trauma I just went through, you know? You have a two syllable word to describe your trauma. <laughs> <laughs> I just think terror, like it's just terrifying. And I don't know, you guys are probably experiencing this too, but like at the beginning, I felt like the walls were closing in on me. Like, all of a sudden, my husband usually travels. So a couple times a month, I like, I mean, I like it. You know, I spread out. I'm in charge of, I'm in charge of the, I'm the king of the castle. Now he's here all the time. My kids are doing PE in the bedroom. I can't do, I can't go all out in therapy because I share a wall with my daughter. And like every now and then, like, you know, sometimes in therapy, I, it's for me, it's a cardio therapy's cardio. <laughs> so the way I do it. And so a lot of times I cry or I yell, or I just like try to get things out. 
And my daughter would be like, are you okay? I heard you during, I heard you during your session. And it's like, my kids don't need to hear me doing therapy. Like, so it sort of mute, it, it muffles the experience. And so all of that just felt terrifying. And now when I imagine having to go back out in the world, I'm like, well, that sounds terrifying. So it's like, we got trauma on both ends. And it's for someone like me who doesn't like change. Now I'm like, oh, my kids are going to go to school all day. Like I'm desperate for it. And also I'm going to miss them. And like, how can I keep them safe if they're out in the world? You know, it's like, it's so confusing. I think we can all relate to that. Uh, Vanessa, how are you? I haven't seen you in so long. Vanessa's asking if you think you would have progressed to where you are today had you not been recommended to join Dr. Rosen's group. And if you'd stayed just with the solo sessions. I love that question. I love that question too. And I think about it a lot. And it's totally self-serving, but I, I mean, I of course want to say what I did was the right thing, but I think about, I think about, you know, what were the dramatic, they happened to be dramatic moments, but the moments were like, I truly believe I leaped forward. And those were moments where I was pushed by my group mates. And I just don't think I could have done that in individual, I would have never I, it's hard to picture having one of the, my gigantic temper tantrums, the pulling of the hair. And like, it, it, if I was by myself, it would have just felt so intimate in a way that is different with group. And, and one of the things I know about myself is even in my individual sessions, and I have my journals from when I started and I went to three individual sessions and then I got plopped in a group. When I'm alone with an authority figure, like a doctor, especially a man, I had this feeling like I had to perform. I had to tell good stories. I had to like, it was so, it felt like so much work to like package it correctly. Just really entertain him. I felt like I had to entertain him and be pretty. And I didn't, it's not that I had none of that when I was in group, but you're just sort of off the hook. Like I don't have to entertain there's six other people here going through divorces, trying to get married, going through IVF, trying to change careers. And like, they get to take the spotlight and I just kind of like, I get to be the witness sometime. And so that's a long winded way. That's like, that's how I justify it to myself that this was the right thing for me. Cause I think it was really important for me to learn how to really touch that deep, deep anger and get it out. And I don't know if I would have had the courage to do that alone in a room with a man. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I just have a quick question for the ladies. Um, is there anyone who has been in therapy and or group therapy? <laughs> I was just curious because I, I mean, it's so um, his, his approach was so completely off the charts that I think that's part of what, you know, kept me glued to the story was what was Dr. Rosen going to prescribe next? And what, like, where did his training come from? Obviously Harvard, but you know, it's just so different. And I think about um, a city like small town where I live and I don't know if that would fly here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you've heard that from anybody. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are. <laughs> I have heard it from a lot of therapists. Um, 
therapists who've read the book are the biggest critics and I get it totally. And I was anticipating that this is really how I've understood this. And I don't know for sure, but it's not the confidentiality piece is the most frightening, right? It's, it's very, very unorthodox. It is not unethical, but very unorthodox. And I, I have yet to come across another therapist who practices this way. And I've like zoomed into like psychiatry resident training at University of Pennsylvania. And they were all like, hmm, I don't know, super uncomfortable, which I totally get. And as somebody who did a diff- did this unorthodox thing, and I'm not, I don't have, I don't know the pedagogical underpinnings of why we have confidentiality or don't. But what I do know is that someone who's an addict, I'm an addict, right? I mean, my, my addiction was food and eating and blah, blah, blah. And so as an addict, I had so many secrets and my addiction really festered and molded inside me because I was not even just beyond my food behavior, which was bizarre, but also just like I couldn't tell and I couldn't talk. And I was so buttoned down and it was so terrifying, so terrifying. The prospect, I really did think that if I opened my mouth and told what I'd seen and what I'd felt and what I believed, I thought I would die. I thought something so terrible would happen. That's how deep it was in me. So to have that lifted, to to just be free of the notion, I don't have to protect anybody. I don't have to, I don't have to keep anybody's anything. It's not mine because I don't know how to do that without shame, which is tricky though. It's tricky now because I'm a parent. And so my, my kid's business doesn't belong anywhere doesn't belong everywhere you know and it's tricky what what i what i feel confident now is i've been with my group for a long long time and while i don't they're allowed to tell their spouses what i said during group or whatever a i don't i don't totally care but i also really trust them they're not going to put it on instagram they're not going to like if some of us are in the same field, there's lawyers in there and the law community, even in Chicago is very small. And I trust them to have my back. I've never had a situation. If people among groups gossip, I mean, that's what it is, is gossip. Um, if they gossip among themselves and they keep it within the Rosen world, which admittedly, that's about 60 people. <laughs> that's a lot of people. But if it doesn't, I haven't had a situation where it's reached the outside world and come back to hurt me. And I haven't seen that. So while we have permission, there's also an ethics and we're building something that we've all bought into that I think speaks for itself, even though we don't have the rule of confidentiality, but therapists, they hate it. Go ahead. Sure. Um, So I, and it's funny because I've never listened to a book before, but I did this time because I needed to get through it quickly <laughs> and I don't have a lot of time. So it is so very cool to hear your voice again, but in real life. <laughs> thank you. So, and I, I, wa- I just wanted to thank you uh, for taking this time out of your life to speak to us because I, um, I imagine you have a busy life <laughs> and I think it's uh pretty incredible that you're here. A question I have for you is I'm wondering if you can give us a small window into how you went from the decision to write a book um, and in the process learn to be an author because you weren't, I presume, I mean, I think you did some writing, you know, as you were progressing through life, but um, to become an author and then complete the book. And you thanked a great deal of people um, at the end of your book 
that helped you along the way. So how exactly did they help you? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. It, it makes me so happy to think about all the people who've touched touch me, touch the pages of the book. There's certain passages of the book that I know are there because like I could drop a pin on like the Apple thing, for example, in my earlier drafts, I had written a draft of the book. It went really quickly because after trying to like imagine things and write fiction, now I was bound by, by what actually happened. And I was like, Oh, I know what happened. So I wrote it really fast and um, it was pretty superficial and really highlighted, like, I wanted a husband. And it kind of didn't really go into, like, it was, it, it didn't have its full darkness, I would say, that I was actually, like, borderline suicidal and uh, alone in a way that was, like, not just I want a boyfriend. It was more like, I'm alone. I'm going to die alone. I picked this career because I'll have a nice purse when I die alone. Like, I just, it was way more serious than I had led it to be. So I joined a writing group. That's some of the people I think in there are, and I found the writing group because I read a memoir by Lydia Yuknovich and it's called The Chronology of Water and it blew my socks away. You think I have sex in my book? Forget about it. Her book was off the charts and I'd never read, you know where I found the book? Cheryl Strayed said Lydia Yuknovich in Oprah Magazine. She said, Lydia Yuknovich writes the best sex scenes ever. So I'm like, uh, check, yes, please. <laughs> I ordered it from the library. I read it in like, you know, the books you just speed read through. So I was going to write her a letter, a, a fan letter, which I'd never done before. And it turns out she runs these workshops um, online, you know, and she's in Portland. And so I signed up for like all of them. <laughs> they were like six weeks and I became friends. Like a, there was a crew, right. Who kept taking the same classes. I got to know them because I would comment on their work and Lydia would comment on our work. So I sort of like plugged into the community which was really gratifying. And I was really hungry for that because I'd been alone as a writer and do my day job. And so I thought I'd have to go get an MFA, a whole new degree, which was not on the table. So to just know that there's these little places that hold these workshops was like, it was like amazing. And I, so then I signed up to do like a manuscript review, right? So Lydia's in charge. There was like five of us and we would turn in like 30 pages at a time. And in the early scenes, early book, I just, I had one line. Sometimes I eat a lot of apples at night. Anywho, blah, 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 blah. I did. That's like all I said. And Lydia circled it. And she was like, what does this even mean? Like what you got to show us. And I was, and she was like, I was like describing it to them. I was like, well, I would like sit on my bed blah, 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 and then I would eat like 10 apples. And she was like, oh, oh, we need a scene. Like show us a typical night of you binging on these apples. And whenever I come to that scene, like that's straight from her feedback. And there's so many places like that where I later, there was a group of us who just banded together to do a writing group. And I know what, I know what my friend Annie gave me. I know what my friend Zen gave me. And so by them showing me what they wanted to see more of in the draft, that's how I was able to shape it. And when I think about that, like, that's how it, that's how I became an author. There was a, there was a ton of rejection. <laughs> that's part of being a writer, but becoming an author was like letting other people help me. And of course it's sort of not surprising that I like group work. I like group, I like writing groups. I, my writing group helped me shape this book and I couldn't have done it without them. Just like I couldn't have done it without my mental health group. So me again. Adrian, 
Where are you? I'm here. Can you hear Did me you, okay? Yes. Did you want to ask your questions? I, they're good questions. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just, I mean, a simple one, I guess. I was just thinking I'm, I've never written a book and I've never, you know, written something so, I guess, personal and, and interesting as you have. But I guess if you could just help us understand what it felt like, you know, the, the night before it was going to go out to the world and what were you feeling and thinking and just, you know, what was that like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So starting in the summer, well, that's not true. So we sold the book, you know, we found out that a publisher was going to buy it last De- December of 2019. It's like euphoria, euphoria. I think by sundown, it was probably like, I found out about 10 in the morning by sundown. I was like, what if Reed's <laughs> wife reads this? And then I was like, and my husband had some concerns about that too. He had read the book. He's not a reader at all. And finally, when it was like, maybe I'm going to sell it. He's like, I better read this book. I better see what you said, lady. Um, So it's like, I started to have, like, I would obsess in like two week increments about different pieces of it. The worst one was over the summer. We took an RV trip just to get out and whatever. And so we don't know what we're doing, just driving around. And, um, I was just like sweating profusely. I was really worried. There's a scene in there where I've gone to Hawaii with my childhood best friend and there was a terrible accident. And um, I started to think, wait a minute, what if there wasn't really a no trespassing sign there? I was worried that I had remembered it, remembered it wrong. And it wasn't there because I started thinking, I started imagining her reading the book, her and her brother reading the book. And them reading like that their father, first of all, they lost their father. So how traumatic to have to read this. I felt so scared that I borrowed their tragedy or I'd misrepresented it. And I was so fixated on this no trespassing sign. So I was like, what if I misremember? Memory is so fallible. I was 14 years old. I was completely, I was actually 13 at the time. I was totally traumatized. But my fear was that I was basically saying this this father, this, my friend's father took us a place we weren't supposed to be. And like, he was somehow implicated and I was just like sweating. It's so hard. And it was too late to do anything about the book. And I remember like telling my husband and my husband's friend was there. And I was just like, and they were like, what are you talking about? Like, let it go. Because what it really, it really was the case that I remember that and everything that happened in this group is how we worked with the issue. But was I, I felt like I should have fact checked it or, been very clear about what was actually in Hawaii. And it was so uncomfortable. I like, I wanted to pull the plug. And I think that the, part of that was just like grappling with exposure and grappling with the responsibility of really getting it right. And I subsequently sent an early, an early arc, an early galley to my friend, to the girl, Jenny and Sebastian. And both of them were so lovely. They were so honored that I had been so affected by their father's death and they didn't say anything about the stupid sign. <laughs> and I realized it was sort of like a phantom, like I was projecting onto them, you know, because as soon as that was resolved, I started worrying about Brandon, like Brandon's going to sue me. Brandon's going to bury. I would talk about it like he was in the mafia, like he's going to bury our family. <laughs> it was just like, and I talked to the lawyers at Simon and Schuster and they were like, look, you um, disguised everybody. And I, I genuinely did. I don't think people would know who these people are. And if Brandon came out of the woodwork to sue me, he would be letting the world know that that was him. And I think 
I, I, again, I started to just think, okay, I'm just scared. I'm just really, really scared. And so by the time I got to the night before, I was so distracted because I knew that Reese Witherspoon had picked my book and I knew that it was like, it was going to turn into like this. I was going to be on the top of a really, really high wave that I didn't even know. (laughs) I didn't even know what to expect at all. Um, And so I feel really grateful that obviously I feel grateful that Reese Witherspoon put her sticker on my book and chose my book, but it really sort of helped me. It just became a different sort of like, a different fear. Like now what's going to happen? I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to be worthy and I wanted to be like a good spokesperson for her brand. But also like, I never dreamed she'd pick my book with all the dick jokes and sex in it. So I was sort of, I didn't know how to do it. So I was like, I, I can only resort to being myself because yeah. I have no idea how else to do this. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, no, you totally did. My second question. And then I know Laura had one was just, you know, I am also a fellow disliker of change, hate it, suck yeah. at it. Like, yeah, terrible. And it's fun being a military spouse because you are voluntold to change every two or three years. So that's interesting. But just, you know, from someone like you, who's also admitted, you don't like change I me. Mean, how did you ready yourself for being now a public figure and like Reese's BFF? I mean, that's a big, change in your what (laughs) um that's funny um you know what you know what the the best coping mechanism I had was all along even when Reese picked the book well really up until Reese picked the book I thought no one's gonna read this no one's gonna read about Christy Tate's journey through therapy I thought it would appeal to people who are kind of like into therapy and I didn't have any idea how many people that was first of all and the whole time I was writing, I just thought you, you get so much rejection as a writer and people tell you, especially when you write nonfiction, I heard a million times, you have to have a platform, you have to have blah, blah, many followers on Twitter. And I had like 24. And um, so I just was able to have the fiction of this isn't going to ever be a thing. And if it is, maybe I'll get a small press <laughs> that no one's heard of, like Adirondack ink or something that like and and I won't even get paid they'll 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 give me three free copies and we'll be on our way I really didn't have grand dreams or a vision for it because I just couldn't and so I so now like the idea of having a platform like overnight for example just by by scale overnight like I gained like 1800 Instagram followers and I was like well, now what do I do? Like, am I supposed to do something like entertain them? Like it's been very, that I just had a lot more fear. I had a lot more fear. Like, what if I say something stupid? I get canceled. Like, what if I, my biggest fear is what if I misuse my platform and don't take opportunities to lift up women and women of color, people who have no voice. Like I'm not, I mean, I'm not Christy Teigen or Christy Teigen by any stretch, but like I do have more power than they had in September. And how do I use that to be a force of good? And how do I use it well? And what would that even look like? And that part has been like, I want to do it right. And I want to I want to participate healthily and have good conversations and uplift. And that's like a lot. Cause I used to just post pictures of like my book stack, you know, so I don't know how to do it or do it well. And so I'm like, I have to just like stumble through and hope I have mercy and grace. 
Christy. Um, Laura Lee, who was on the call that had to dart, she has a spot on amazing question. I think you'll appreciate. Um, I wanted to ask it to just to make sure she is a clinical psychologist and she struggled with the issues around confidentiality, boundaries, dual relationships, et cetera. And she was curious about the development of uh, our coping skills and emotional regulation independent of the group. Oh, that's a good question too. Therapists like <laughs> therapists like that one too. Another one I get a lot is, do you think, do you think that it was time for you to like stand on your own two feet? Something. I mean, that's like a harsh way to say it. So I think it's a fair question. Like people sometimes point to the scene where I'm in Germany and I'm supposed to be working. I'm this, you know, corporate lawyer with an expense account. And I'm like, maybe going to kill myself in Germany because somebody broke up with me. Um, and I'm calling Dr. Rosen from Germany. He doesn't call me back and I cannot cope. Um, and I think it's a fair question. And I think that the ideal is you practice skills in group. Group is like emotionally going to going to practice, right? You're shooting hoops and then real life is the game or whatever, the basketball game. And like, you have to do, you have to take, it's like the patient, the onus is on the patient. The onus is on me to take the skills of confrontation or um, de-escalation or speaking up, speaking my truth. The onus is on me to, to learn that in group and to bring it into my marriage, into my workplace. And it's constantly, I do feel like I'm constantly kind of making these decisions like, is a staff meeting the right place to talk about my history of pinworm or what I'm going through in my marriage? Of course not. Of course it's not. Having no secrets means when I go to group, I don't have to protect anybody. I'm there for me and I get to fight for Christy and hurt what she needs to say without anybody else, which is different than how I do a calculus at a staff meeting or when my in-laws come to town. <laughs> um, thank God. Um, so there is a lot of calculus to do, but in general, I think that there, I, it, I think, I, I think for me, maybe it took me a little longer than others to learn how to translate what I was learning in group and translating it into my real life. Or, or maybe I just, I, I was willing to write it all down. Who knows? Ladies, don't be shy. This is one that I've been dying to ask. Um, I'm curious what you think about the culture of shame that young women are growing up in today. And even, you even mentioned, you know, the idea of being canceled kind of for speaking your truth or rubbing someone the wrong way. What, what is your opinion on the world we live in right now as, as women? I'm terrified. I'm really, really terrified. The escalation of shame as a tool, as a societal tool to now it's tricky though, right? Because do I think Harvey Weinstein should be shamed? Of course I do. He's a monster. The problem is there's, Online life has really weaponized shame in a way that uh, we all know this. It has no nuance. There's often no context. So I'm really, really concerned about the lack of discernment, the lack of true engagement. A lot of the things that come up and bubble up, they're really complicated. Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, not complicated, pretty not complicated, but something, something more nuanced like a woman, you know, 
And our children are watching us. Our children are watching us. So what's going to happen when a a daughter, someone at my kid's school, a young girl, if she makes a mistake or she wants to explore pleasure in a way that other people think is immoral, immodest, immature, or like not too mature, right? There's so much policing of women, of girls and their bodies. And they're, the kids are learning it from us. They're learning it from us. Kids don't automatically shame people. They've learned how to do that. And I don't know, I, I think a lot about this. And one of the things, I mean, these are kind of basic, but like, I try not to participate, obviously, in shaming my children but also shaming myself. Like, even if I don't tell my kids how I'm shaming myself because, oh, they've been on the screen all day or, oh, I ate this or whatever, those thoughts go through my head and I try to address them because even if I don't say it to them, it's in the air, it's in our household. Like I'm either operating on shame or I'm walking away from shame. And so I am very concerned about how we throw it around and how it just gets bigger and bigger and more scary. And especially the way that it plays out online, it really scares me for how do you protect someone? How do you, how do I even, even if my kids or their loved ones, beloveds, friends, even if they are not the object of the shame, how do I teach them how to deal with the temptation to shame others? Right? Like there's, there's not just the prospect of them being victims. There's the prospect of them being perpetrators. And I want to have these conversations and talk about it with them. First of all, so they'll recognize what's going on. Like, are you feeling the impulse to shame? Are you feeling shamed? Like we, if we can identify it, we can work with it. So we talk about shame a lot in my house, <laughs> like more than, I mean, I didn't know shame until I went to Dr. Rosen. I didn't know it as a word. I didn't know it was totally who I was. So I try to education. I'm hoping will at least do something. Amanda. I don't want to put you on the spot and you're probably going to kill me, but you were really excited to read this book. And I'm just wondering um, what you got out of it or if you might have anything you want to ask Christy and you can also shoot me later. (laughs) No, that's fine. (laughs) No, it was such an eye opening book for me because I didn't think of the concept of, of confidentiality and keeping secrets and how much that impacts me especially in the work that I do, it's part of my job is to keep secrets um, and to keep things confidential in more than one way, because I'm, you know, I work in HR and plus I work as an executive coach. So it really put things into context for me, how difficult that is and why it's difficult. And it just felt so freeing to learn about that, you know, honest sharing. And I started to do it more in my life in the areas where I can. And it helped me understand better why I was feeling challenged with having to keep so many things confidential secret. I never thought of the HR challenges. That is more intense than therapy, I think, because crazy shit happens at work. Oh my gosh. That is, I really, really. And one of the things I've seen is, you know, I came in, I was young. I didn't have children. I was very casual and flagrant about my legal career. If I'd had any brains in my head, I probably would have been a little more guarded, but I was just like, I don't care. I want a boyfriend. And so I was very open and I didn't, there was nothing at stake, right? It was just me, myself and me. And like now my life is more complex because I have 
you know, when I had clients as a lawyer and my husband and whatever. My only point is I've shared this circle with a lot of therapists through the years and it's really, really hard for them. Like they, so they'll come in and they'll say, well, I have this patient. And Dr. Rosen will say, do you want to say your patient's name? Not the last name, like the first name. And they're, they're, they never do. They're always like, that is so unethical trying to get me to say my patient's name. Right. And he's, his point, as I hear it is you've brought this into group. This is something that's like troubling you. Like you've taken something on, there's a trauma being trained. There's something being transacted here. If it would help you to say the first name, we're not, how am I going to know someone's an ear doctor and they saw someone named Tom, like, I'm not going to figure out who that is. The doctors never do it. They end up giving like fake names, like, like Snow White came to see me, you know, like whatever. And I really, really, I don't know what that feels like. And it's hard for them because they sometimes don't even agree with Dr. Rosen. Some of them are therapists who do have confidentiality and they're in therapy where there is not the same mandate. And so I just, I feel you on that. And I'm starting to have way more compassion for my, my doctor group mates because it's tricky line. And just in follow-up, Sam, to the other thing that really struck me as we're all talking is, you know, the benefits of group. And I'm just wondering in a place like Thunder Bay, where some of us do live, you know, in a small town where some of you may live, how safe is that? And are people missing out on services because they don't, they're worried about who they're going to run into in a group setting in terms of therapy or even accessing therapy individually because they're worried that they may know the therapist or the therapist is their cousin's brother or, you know, things like that. I, I can yeah, just, I, even there, there's, I live on a military base here in Hawaii and it's pretty small. And I just related to what you're saying, Amanda, it struck me that there's a Facebook community page and the intent is to be community. So a new person comes in, they don't know where the doctor is. They are pregnant. They're like one advice on delivering at X clinic or whatever it may be. But the sad thing is I, you see so many young military spouses start their post with, please don't judge me. And then they go into what they're asking about because it's just this concept of, I'm afraid my community is going to know that I'm an idiot and I didn't know this, or they think my hobby is dumb or they don't want to be my friend. So that just reminded me of things that it's just constant and it's heartbreaking to see that you have to couch what you're asking for or what you want to help with by please don't make fun of me or judge me or think that. So I think it's even in the micro communities within larger communities, that's so prevalent. That's a really good point. I also, <laughs> there's like, someone sent me a clip of um, Howard Stern some, was reading the book and he said something like, I'm reading this book by this sexually uptight woman. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's me. And um, and he he and Robin were talking about it on the, I don't listen to Howard Stern, but they were like having a back and forth about it. And she was like, oh, why don't you do that therapy? You love therapy. I guess Howard Stern is like enlightened and goes to tons of therapy. And he was like, oh, I could never do that. Like, I'm a celebrity. Like, I can't go to a group where there's like no confidentiality. And I was like, he's kind of right. Like, if Howard Stern comes to group and tells a good story, that's that's tricky. That's real tricky. So I, it's it's not for everybody. Like, it's just, the come. I just come back to it's not for everybody. And um, maybe there are groups where there is confidentiality and that might work better for some of these sensitive situations. And at the end of the day, it's good that we have lots of choices and like individual is just maybe the right choice for lots of people or like 
you know, you could have a group of a couple of celebrities because then they all know the deal, you know, like Johnny Depp and Howard and, you know, Lizzo in a room and that would be awesome. (laughs) But it wouldn't be for someone like me. At the same time, I was fascinated by the concept, like, or curious about it. Like, what if we were just not so concerned about confidentiality? What could be possible for all of us if every single person knew what I was working on to be a better person and could support me and push me? And I knew what each of every single one of you were trying to improve on. And even if we are in this small town altogether, then we can support each other that way. Yeah, I mean, it's right. I mean, that's how vulnerability is that's what it does. And I was really, I find that I test that I test this over myself. Like I listened to a podcast called armchair expert and that shepherd, he's so open. And I'm, and I'm always like, I have the, I have the raised eyebrows. And then I'm just like, I just love him. I just love him for saying that, for saying that, like, I'm not even judging him. Like, and some of it I don't relate to, like, I've never had a three-way with my high school best friend, you know, like I've just never done that, but, and I've never had a drug addiction and gone and relapse and lied to America for a couple of sessions. You know, I just, I don't love him less. I love him more. And he's deeply ashamed of some of the things he talks about. And I just sort of think of that as a model, just like you were saying, Amanda, like, What's the fear? Like people know people, some people hate me and they hate my book and they hate Dr. Rosen, but like I've gotten a ton of love come my way and connection. And the question for me is which do I attach to? And what have I learned that the principles of group, I have taken the show on the road and it's, it's a wonderful experience. I think that the, the thing that you're hitting on the most for me is this idea of freedom. Yeah. And isn't that what we all want is just to feel free, to feel free to like be our true weird self um, without fear that we'll be rejected. And that's what one of the things I found so refreshing in this book was just how unabashed you were in growing to that place where you could be free. Yeah. Like about everything. It was just radical. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely took, I took it to the, I took it to the fences. That's true. Christy, who's going to play you in the movie? <laughs> okay. Here's my dream cast. Um, A.D. Bryant from Saturday Night Live. I just love her spark and I love her. There's just something about, I was not that um, funny or that like, she's got a spark that I didn't quite have, but like ever since I must've had a dream about it because ever since then, I just can't get it out of my head. But I also don't know that many actresses. I mean, I, it's like Meryl Streep. No, like I was very young. And so I'm like Dakota Fanning. <laughs> I don't know. So I don't know that many actresses, but I sort of have latched onto this A.D. Bryant thing and kind of can't let it go. I love that. Can I ask a question? Yes, sure. Catherine. Is there a particular, I, I guess I'm going to phrase it as rule of engagement or a way of interacting with your group that you that you found particularly fruitful or beneficial for your processing? Yeah, I think it's group is where I learned to express my emotions in real time as opposed to always smiling, always being sure everyone's happy with me and cracking a joke and being easygoing and breezy, which is, I'm so not like that. Um, What I learned in group was like, when you're angry, you get, I get to say, Ooh, I feel angry. 
here, here's what's happening for me. Like I get to just pause. I used to never pause and I get to do that now. Or, or even sometimes like things are moving quickly and I realize I feel fear and I don't even know what's happening. And like, I I've done that before in conversations with people who never stepped foot in therapy. And I'm like, Oh, can we just slow down a second? Like something, something's coming up for me. And I just let's slow down. Like it's become this wonderful tool to just say, can we slow down for a second? You know, sometimes you get on the phone with someone and they're like, ah! and you're just like, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. And before, I, I mean, I'm such, so deeply a people pleaser that I just want people to feel comfortable and safe and happy around me. And I thought the only way to do that was to smile and, all, and never have a problem or a feeling, <laughs> which is not a way to make people feel safe or be safe. So that's been, that's been incredible. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, I sent you that email and I assumed that an agent would read it. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be like, "Uh, yeah, no, it's Monday. That's not going to happen. So you're you're just incredibly generous and uh, I appreciate your transparency and your honesty with all of us. And uh, the book was fabulous. I'm on a mission to get people to read it. Great. Well, thank you all so much for everybody's. I know everybody's busy. You could be doing a million things right now. There's so much on Netflix. So thank you for spending time with me and for your thoughtful questions and your support of the group. And I'm really grateful. And um... I hope you enjoyed our chat with bestselling author Christy Tate. The most compelling concept to come out of her memoir for me was this idea that we don't need a cure. We need a witness. I think about that when I'm tempted to solve my daughter's recent teenage drama. What she needs most from me in those moments of raw vulnerability is just to be witnessed, to be seen and to have space held for her to feel. If you want to join our global book club, New Leaf, drop me an email at sam at shewalkthewalk.com. We've enrolled women from all over, eager to gather, learn and connect over our shared love for books. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, hit the like button or comment down below. New episodes are released every second Monday. Listen while you walk.